Let's do a little test, so say something for me. Hello, my name is Brie Ann Gregg. I'm an Aquarius. <laughs> I like the color blue. I like donuts. Wish I would have had a donut this morning. Welcome to the Embrace Your Weird podcast. I am Lisa Jacob, and this is the place where we talk about anxiety, authenticity, and what happens when we stop acting. I'm very excited to not be in my closet once again. Pretty much all of season one took place inside my closet, and I have ventured out for season two. And so we are actually in Chicago, Illinois for today's episode. I am interviewing really just one of the dearest people in my life. Brie Gregg and I have known each other for somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 years, 18 years, perhaps. Dang. Dang indeed. Dang. It's a little bit shocking. But I also can't imagine what my life was before her, so it makes sense that she's been around for that long. So I will let Brie introduce herself and uh, define herself rather than throwing all kinds of labels on her. But if you listen to her voice and think she perhaps sounds familiar, it is because you, as a listener to the Embrace Your Weird podcast, are already familiar with Brie's voice because you hear it at the end of every single episode. She is an incredibly talented singer and songwriter, and um, she has offered up her music for this podcast, and I am so grateful for that. But today, we are going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and it's something that I I wanted to do a podcast episode about because I have so many people ask me about this, which is essentially this. Lisa, you're very honest about the fact that you have anxiety and specifically social anxiety and that you have a panic disorder. So why on earth would you, one, have ever been an actor, and two, why would you now choose to do public speaking events, to be teaching where you're standing up in front of people, and to do these workshops where I am also standing up in front of people. So I get this question a lot, which is like, basically, why the hell would you choose the careers you have chosen with the affliction that you have? And my answer is, I really don't understand (laughs) why this has been my path in life. But I want to kind of let's say, peel this apart a little bit. And I do have some ideas about why I have put myself in this seemingly ridiculously vulnerable position. And I thought I really want to talk with somebody else who maybe has a somewhat similar experience of perhaps having some anxiety, but someone who is also in the performing arts. So of course I thought of my dear friend Brie, and so that is pretty much what we're going to be talking about today. How do you deal with anxiety 
when you need to be in front of people, when you choose to be in front of people. How does that work? So with that, hi, Bree. Hi. How are you? I'm so happy to be here with you, and I'm so, I'm so grateful that you are willing to be open and honest and talk to me about what is, it, it tends to be a difficult topic, and it tends to be a little bit hard to talk about anxiety, and there's still a little bit of hiding, I think, that some of us with anxiety do. So I really appreciate you being willing to, to do this. So mm-hmm. why don't you start by talking a little bit about you as a person, what you do for a career, if you consider yourself to be a person that has anxiety, what that looks like in your life. No anxiety ever. I'm just cool as a cucumber. <laughs> I never struggle with anything. I'm very put together. <laughs> just teasing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Embrace Your Weird. And now we're done. Thank you. <laughs> the end. Um, okay, so who I am. I live in Portland, Oregon. Used to live near Lisa, so we used to go have coffee together and get to see each other every day, pretty much. Um, but now I live in Portland with my hubby and my two kids, and I'm a musician, so I have my own band, and I've been singing and performing for a very long time. This is the first endeavor that features my own original music, so that's a kind of a shift for me. It's been really exciting. Um, and then I also teach, so I teach people how to sing, um, teach performance skills and the mechanics of singing and music theory, all that kind of stuff. I definitely deal with anxiety for sure, as you know. I would say for me, the part of the reason I want to talk to you about this today is that I feel a lot like I get students that come to me and they are very upset about the fact that they have stage anxiety. And they come to me and they say, there's something wrong with me, can you help me? This is, this is like, if, if I were supposed to sing, if I was supposed to be a musician, if I'm supposed to be a performer, I shouldn't feel this way. So what is wrong with me? And I feel like in my own performing and then in my own teaching, I've realized that this is so, I think I've had one person I've ever worked with who didn't deal with stage anxiety. And this is years of performing in classical music, in blues, in rock, in soul, in almost every genre imaginable, in bars, in theaters, like it runs the gamut. I feel like almost all of them at some level have had stage anxiety. So I think the first thing to know when doing this is just to normalize the fact that when you're feeling that, that is actually a very normal human feeling. And it, and maybe if you're not feeling it, you are one of the rare lucky few. I think mostly it's just the way you feel when you're a human being in front of people bearing your soul. It's very vulnerable and terrifying in every way. <laughs> like That is just the truth. And so I feel like if we try to pretend that that means we're not performers or that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing, that's what really gets us into trouble. Like, I think that is just a normal way to feel when you're doing those things because it's, it's scary. Like, it, I don't think it's you're not supposed to be scared. I don't think you shouldn't do something if you're scared. 
I think that's so brilliant and so important for people to know. And I love what you just said at the end. I don't think that you should stop doing something just because it's scary. And so many people, this just goes to, I think what is fundamental with so many people, which is this feeling that there's something wrong with us Mm -hmm. and that it is just us and everybody else is cool as a cucumber and they have it all together and they never get anxious and they never panic and they never get depressed and it's just us and we're the screwed up ones. And so I think it is incredibly powerful to have that reassurance that it's okay to feel the fear and do it anyway. It doesn't mean that this is the wrong path for you. It doesn't mean that you're not cut out for this. It means that putting yourself in that vulnerable position of performing, being in front of people, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure it feels like this for a lot of uh, people in the performing arts. Like you are bearing your soul. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's okay for that to, to be scary. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you are broken or ill-equipped Mm-mm. to do what it is that you're doing. No. In fact, I think it probably means that you're being very honest with your communication. In some ways, it probably means that maybe you're more equipped to do this kind of work because you're willing to be that vulnerable in front of people. You know, it's it's so interesting. I feel like one of the things when people come to me for lessons, it helps to talk about, you know, the experiences of other students, but then it also really helps, I think, to talk to them about my past experiences because I feel like there are things you can do to help with the process, and we can talk about that in a minute, but the main thing is just doing it over and over and over. Like, there is an element to this that is very similar to any sort of phobia that you might have, which you could also wonder, like, hmm, why do I do that to myself? That I don't know. I've never fully understood the answer to that question. Um, Why do I put myself in, why do I feel very compelled to put myself into those situations? Um, But then on the other end, I feel like I get so much joy out of it and I love it so much that for me, it's worth the trade-off. But there was definitely, when I started performing, There were many years before when I was studying that I dealt with stage anxiety. But when I started professionally performing, there was a full year where I would literally, like I have many experiences of throwing up before performing, like where I was in full fight or flight. I remember a particular performance where I was standing in front of the piano and I literally was having a conversation with myself where I was like, "Should should I run? Like, should I just leave? I was so scared that I wasn't sure that noise was going to come out of my mouth when the music started. So I think having that background and then working through that and then doing it over and over and over hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of times. And now not having that kind of still having some performances where I have those nerves that hasn't disappeared completely. But now I feel in control of it. And I also feel more like when you know what's going to come up, it's not so alarming. You know, you sort of know what works for you and those things. Um, But I think it's just unfortunately one of those things that you just have to do it over and over 
for yourself to get to the point where you realize you, you aren't going to die <laughs> and you know, you're going to make it through. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's very similar to other phobias, I think. And that is a proven psychological tactic, right? Mm-hmm. If you do cognitive behavioral therapy, it's called in vivo exposure therapy, where, you know, if you are afraid of heights, you take one step up a ladder. The next day, you take two steps up a ladder. Mm-hmm. The next day, you take three steps up yeah. a ladder. And it is literally the repetition that reconfigures your brain yeah. in order to let you know that you are capable of this. Yes. And, you know, sometimes we feed into the habit of kind of giving in to the phobias and then it's like the phobia wins and then it feels like okay see I was right to not do that but when we can do that and remember even the talks that I have given that have not gone well even the ones where I feel like oh that wasn't great I was not on my game you realize that you're building up your resiliency to go wow that did not feel good Mm -hmm. but I did not implode It did not kill me. Yes. Right? I still go home. You know, my husband still loves me. My dog still jumps on me. I still get to do the work that I love. All of the fundamental things that are important to me are still there. It's just really shitty that that didn't go well. And you realize that you can build up that resiliency to go, okay, this feels hard, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to do it again. Yes. And... Sometimes I find that when I have a performance like that, that I feel really shitty about and I feel small and I feel embarrassed because I feel like I didn't bring my A game or whatever. I find out later like that someone in the audience was really touched by it or that it, I mean, so we get so involved in our own experience of it. And sometimes our thought of how well we did does is not actually translated to what the audience experiences either. Like, I think this sort of living in your head, which all of us do, um, can be a real detriment sometimes because you only see such a small part of what other people are experiencing. So it's almost like, um, this might actually be a very strange analogy, but I went through this period of time where I was dealing with depression and I felt like maybe I should go on antidepressants, maybe I shouldn't, I don't know. Of course, I didn't want to. No one ever really wants to do that. But... I kind of relied on my husband to help me with that decision because I felt like inside myself, I'm probably not the right person to know whether or not I'm in full control of this. Like what other people experience oftentimes can be truer than what we think that they're experiencing. And so even though it's a totally different situation, sometimes I feel that way with audiences where it's like, they are the really we're doing this for them so even though we have all of this ego involvement it really is about what they are experiencing so almost being able to let go put out whatever you can in that moment and then try to let go of the outcome which is very challenging to do but i think that's the goal you know absolutely there's this buddhist concept of equanimity which is essentially this balance between working hard and surrendering Mm -hmm. so it's like you prepare and do the best that you can and you show up and you throw your heart into it and then you have to completely surrender to the outcome because really what other people 
think of your contribution as none of your business. Right, right. Yes, right. Because if there's a way to tease out the ego in this, that is the deal. I mean, if you can figure out a way, like you say, to do the stuff that's in your control and then let go of how it's perceived, poof, that's the, that's the work. That is the work. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you have some tools that have been helpful for maybe easing the anxiety before a performance. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first thing I will say is that, quite unfortunately, I have no silver bullets at all in this. But these are things that I feel like have helped me and have helped students that I've worked with. The number one thing is repetition. So if you want to perform or if you want to speak in front of people, you just have to do it over and over and over. And one of the things that I try to remind myself and I try to remind my students is this phrase, when when you're feeling so scared and you literally are like having a physical reaction, you feel sick to your stomach, you feel your breath quickens. I mean, you literally, your body is going through all of the same things as though you're being chased by a lion. It really doesn't know the difference. When you're feeling that way, I feel like it's really helpful to take really deep inhales and exhales and remind yourself that that is what bravery feels like. There is this idea that bravery is an absence of fear. And I don't think that is at all true. In fact, virtually in every situation where I see people doing these incredible things, you included, there's lots of people who do these, like they live really big in their life and they have courage and they try new things and you think, oh my God, they're so brave. They're doing these things. And then you were, you talk to them and you get to know them and you realize that they're terrified. They're just doing it anyway. So I feel like this mantra of like, this is what brave feels like. This is what brave feels like. You know, this is so important to remind ourselves that what we're doing is really brave and it's really vulnerable and it is scary. It's not something that we're creating in our head. There's a reason why lots of people don't do it. Um, It is scary. So I think that's the first thing is just to acknowledge that when you're feeling that way, not to try to convince yourself that you shouldn't be feeling this way or that there's something wrong with the way you're feeling or that if you were a real performer, you wouldn't be feeling this way. I think just owning the fact that this is what it feels like is really important. And then deep breaths. I know that seems very like obvious, but the, if you can figure out a way to slow down your breathing, the rest of it really follows. I feel like it makes the, it really can change the way you see a situation, but it also can really change the way um, you sing the way you speak because then your brain can sort of take over and be a part of the equation rather than being in this sort of state of fight or flight so that's one thing um there are lots of studies that have been done about positive visualization of the experience so if you have time beforehand to sit and think about it going really well again these are not like like crazy things no one's ever thought about but they really work if you can sit and think about the performance going really well and you can think about actually you know specific songs the more specific you can get with the visualization the better i find that for me if i can be by myself before it's really nice like if i don't have to talk to people if i don't have to pretend that i'm not obsessively thinking about the fact that i'm freaking out is much it's much more helpful if i can sit like by myself take deep breaths 
kind of do this positive visualization thing. And then there are also things like beta blockers can be very helpful for people. Um, when I was doing classical music, I used beta blockers. Um, I don't need them anymore, but I did need them for a period of time and they were very helpful for me. Basically what they do, um, I believe they were actually like a heart medication initially. And so what they do is they slow down the rapid breathing that is associated with freaking out. And it can kind of, even though it, it basically allows you to be more present because it takes away some of those symptoms in the beginning. So I think that can be helpful. I don't utilize it so much because it really depends, it's dependent on personality. But there are some of my students that it really helps to have very specific day of processes. So for example, if they have a performance that night, they always eat a peanut butter sandwich at lunch. They always grab this certain kind of tea. They have an hour before where they sit in a certain area and they listen to music. That's another thing that I feel like really helps people sometimes is listening to music. Not necessarily the music that you're about to perform, but just music to get you sort of out of your head. Um, but sometimes people have a, like having these sort of very specific rituals can be really helpful for people. I don't tend to be a very ritual oriented person. Um, it might help me too, I just never do it. But I know some, some of my students have a lot of success with that because they feel like it's something that they have control over. So it's like this thing feels very out of control, it feels very chaotic, but at least I can do these steps. And I think the other thing that I wanted to mention, and this one again feels very obvious, but there is an aspect of preparation in this that I think is really important because a lot of times what happens to people who are really scared is they try to avoid the thing. So for example, I have students that have auditions that come up and I've had students that would be so afraid of the audition that they almost can't even think about it in their minds. So they don't want to work on the music. They don't want to think about it. Um, they want to almost pretend like it's not going to happen. And then that does two things that makes it so when you get to the audition and you don't do well, you can say, well, I didn't really work on it. And then that can kind of be a reason rather than I really suck, they didn't like me, you know? So there's that aspect of it. We have to force ourselves to be as prepared as possible. And in the, maybe that's our job as teachers. And then if you can see that in yourself as well, and you see somebody evading something, I think a lot of times teachers look at that and they think, oh, they're lazy, they don't wanna work on this. When a lot of times it's a very specific coping mechanism where they just can't even look at Avoidance. the fact that it's coming. Um, until it's too late and then they're past the point where they can really work on it and then I feel like that feeds into the process of getting really freaked out because they end up not doing very well and then they now have more information that shows that they don't do very well in auditions when in fact there could be a preparation element in that but they have convinced themselves that see I was right I didn't think I was gonna do well and I didn't do well so I think that's one of our jobs too, as teachers of sort of, and if we can see it in ourselves, forcing yourself, even if you're in stark terror, to go down to wherever you need to practice and start. Even if that means, okay, I'm gonna do this for 10 minutes a day. I'm just gonna sit in that room and I'm gonna, maybe I'm gonna think about this song. Maybe I'm gonna sing it. Maybe, you know, whatever it is that you can accomplish. A big part of this is preparation. God, the self-fulfilling prophecy is such a oh terrifying. 
truism, right? Self-sabotage, all of those Mm -hmm. things. And when you can recognize that in your own behavior, it's devastating, but it's also the first step, Mm -hmm. right? Towards doing something differently. Yeah. And I think for me, the times that I have been really freaked out, it's right before and it's in the the first half of the first song. And then I'm okay. Like there's a period, it's not gonna be the whole time. I mean, very rarely is it the whole time. Even if you're in full like fight or flight, it's usually once you get started, you're like, okay, like I'm not gonna die. This, and then you reminded it actually feels good. And then you, for me, with singing, for you with um, speaking, it's like the part that makes you feel good takes over. And so I think that helps too, knowing that it's not necessarily gonna be like the full two-hour performance. Like it may be the next ten minutes. And there is benefit in learning how to deal with 10 minutes of hell too. Like not just in performing, but just in life. Like learning, okay, I'm just gonna sit here and breathe. That's literally all I can do. Like all I can do is breathe. I can't, I'm not gonna be able to talk myself out of this. So I just have to take one step forward. I have to take deep breaths and I have to force myself to walk over to that microphone. It's about learning how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. That, without a doubt, has been one of the most just helpful things because yeah. that opens up a whole world of opportunities yes. when I realize, like, oh, discomfort and pain are different, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to choose suffering and pain, but if you can be okay being in that space when you're uncomfortable, it means you can be okay in that space where you have to have a difficult discussion where you have to do something that's outside of your comfort zone and you can be okay in that space where you're not comfortable yes i totally agree i loved what you said about the positive visualization because i tend to be someone who does negative visualization Mm -hmm. which i will create the top 19 ways that this could go horribly horribly wrong i think that's very common and i will replay those just like a film strip throughout my mind yes and i know that that's terrible for me i have tried to stop doing that but just like any habit it's really hard to stop doing something that is habitually ingrained what works better is creating a new habit that you do instead. And so I think I've been trying to just not come up with the worst case scenario, but I hadn't gotten to the point where I thought, oh, what I should do is come up with the best case scenario Mm -hmm. and imagine what that would look like. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a big deal because I don't know that much about this, but I have heard through my counselor and various other people that there is something like a seven to one ratio in terms of um, it takes seven positive thoughts to overcome one negative thought. And there is very important reasons for this. Again, like if you have a lion chasing you, that should be more important than this rose that smells really good. Like we are, I think, designed that way very specifically but what it means is that when you're about to go on stage your body actually thinks it's it's doing that to try to save you like it thinks okay could I actually die what are the things like when you're coming up with these things that could go horribly wrong that is so normal and human that is the way it works and so I actually think I don't even know that you really can stop that I think you almost the only way to overcome it is by 
kind of flushing in positive thoughts because I think we are naturally made that way to try to protect ourselves. And I think that's such a helpful way to look at it as this has been evolutionarily required for mm-hmm. us. Yeah. So of course it's going to be really hard to undo. Yes. Of course this is going to be our reaction. And to kind of flip the script on that and no longer think of it as, oh, why am I like this? This shouldn't happen. I should be over it by now. I should be better than this. I should, I should, I should. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, oh, it's yeah. good to worry about right. some things. It's right. good to have anxiety about some things, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's more an issue of how do we just turn the volume down a little bit? Mm-hmm. And how do we try to have a little bit of influence over the the circumstances and the amount mm-hmm. of our anxiety and our stress yes because you know it if somebody has zero fear of anything they're probably going to be reckless and like die at age 20 mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. some of those things are really good and helpful for us and mm-hmm. i think that if you can come from a place of acceptance of that rather than just trying to like beat it out of yourself Mm -hmm. it's a much more compassionate and actually more possible way yeah to deal with it yeah no I I totally agree with that and I also think there's a realization that like (laughs) for me going to therapy has been interesting because I feel like the vast majority of stuff we discuss are things that happened when I was a kid and so they're actually not things that impact me anymore but I have to realize that they don't impact me anymore because I still have the natural feeling of those things bubble up because of these past experiences that no longer impact me anymore. But it's, again, my these sort of um, ways that I protect myself based on years and years and years ago. A lot of the things that we use to protect ourselves are sort of obsolete. We don't need them anymore, but it takes... I don't know how long it takes, actually. <laughs> Maybe it never fully goes away, but... It takes a long time to get rid of those habits that your, you know, that your brain has and your body has. Those things that are just innate to you. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the phrase "fake it till you make it"? I think that is the only way to do anything. <laughs> Actually, I think it is very rare that anyone starts out feeling confident in anything they're doing. Even people that become just incredible at what they do. I don't think they start out feeling incredible. I, often they don't start out being incredible. Like there are certain examples where that isn't true, genius and all that kind of stuff. But the vast majority of us start out not being very good at what we're doing, even if we have innate talent. Um, so to me, if our expectation is that you start out good at something, that just means we won't do things. It's just not a thing. Like I. I don't know where this concept comes from. We're such perfectionists, I think, by nature. We think that if we're not good at something, we shouldn't do it. But most people are not good at things. Like, even... I've been really getting into comedians lately because I find... I think I'm completely um, astonished by comedians because I think at least when I'm freaked out, I can... There's a song. There's another musician. There, There's a band there that can help me. There's something that I can... Um, cling to but to me as a comedian where you're going out on stage by yourself you have to have a very specific point of view in order to really be funny which means that there are going to be people in the audience that don't like you period and even great comedians you listen to their earlier work 
and they're just not funny for a period of time. Like they're just not, even if they have like, again, this innate talent and that just, that literally like even talking about it makes me feel sick to my stomach. That seems so scary to me, but again, they just do it again and again, again, and then they get great. And then you hear them and you think, well, of course they're doing this. They're great. Why wouldn't they do this? But then you realize they were not great at one time. So it's just interesting to me, the resiliency of humans and the like fire that we have to move forward with things that don't feel good. Like I actually think that's kind of beautiful and amazing in a way. Yeah. Have uh, you heard Ira Glass talk about this topic? Mm-mm. He has a great, I will link this in the show notes because I don't know the title of it or where you can find it, but it obviously stuck with me. So Ira Glass talks about creativity and artists and how at the beginning you're pretty much kind of required to suck for a little bit Mm -hmm. and what truly makes an an artist great is their willingness to stick with the suckiness and to learn from it and to progress and that actually you should look back on your early work and be a little disappointed because you should be learning and growing and exploring new territory and that that is just what is required of the process. Mm. And it's um, it's incredibly reassuring <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, of course, Ira Glass, you look at him and I think he's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think he was amazing from the beginning, but he wasn't because yeah. almost none of us were. And so I love this idea of having the courage to, to stick with something and to be not great at it at first. And I, I, you said something about perfectionism, which I think is such a massive topic and something that we are, I think, increasingly as a society getting bogged down with. Yes, I totally agree. For the most part, I, I actually think social media has a real benefit when it comes to um, connection and I think it can be really great and there is also this dark side which makes us compare our lives to everybody's uh, Instagram feeds which of course are just you know the highlights of everything that is good and amazing and I think it really feeds our feelings of of insecurity and that we're not measuring up and that we're doing something wrong and that everybody else has it together and we don't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that perfectionism just, it kills so many things. It kills opportunities. It kills excitement. It, It just basically suffocates so much in our lives. And if we can recognize perfectionism for what I believe it is, which is just fear, and if we realize that even if we go out there and try something, and if we fall flat on our face and it's an absolute disaster, that I think we can actually be proud of that mm-hmm. because we were brave. Yeah. That is what brave feels like. That mm-hmm. is what brave looks like, that yeah. you do something that has zero guarantees. Mm-hmm. Right? You do not know how this is going to go, but you decided that it is worth it to live a life where you don't let perfectionism and insecurity and fear run the show. And something too that pops to mind for me, um, well, a couple things. One thing that's really interesting about that in social media in general is 
I feel that big time, even though I know what you're saying is true, that that people don't often share when they're in a dark place or, you know, it's often these sort of like bite-sized things, the best picture of themselves or the best this. And I definitely, from that's what I do. I never, I never post when I'm struggling or that kind of stuff. Like I just don't do that. Um, but we might want to just band together and do that more, you know, like realize that, that there are some good things about it. Again, like what you're saying, this connection, and maybe we make a pact as a, you know, as a people to try to be more honest on there, because I think not only does it really impact this perfectionism, but I think people who tend to struggle with depression and issues like that, it really increases those feelings of loneliness and isolation. And I just, it just is an unrealistic expectation with life. Um, anyway, that's one thought. The other thought I had when you were talking was this annoying thing that happens once you've been performing or speaking or whatever for a long time, which is that you don't just suck in the beginning. You also sometimes go through periods where you shift and then you suck again for a while. And that really is unfortunate because you think, okay, when I'm, you know, when I was young or when I first started out, like I really sucked at this, but now I've got it together. And then you try something different. Like for me, I tried songwriting. That was a new endeavor for me. Like I, I felt really comfortable performing and singing in front of people. And then I started writing my own songs and then I was terrified all over again. And I felt like in some ways I was starting the process all over again because it felt so vulnerable for me and so new. So I think there's also that t- catches you by surprise sometimes, even as you progress in your career, I think you can go through these shifts where again, you feel like, okay, now I'm, I've got that, but this new thing is terrifying to me too. So it, I think it's not something you just deal in the beginning of your career. I think it's something that you deal in different ways throughout your life. Absolutely, because if you're growing, if mm-hmm. you're changing, if you're if you're progressing, you're gonna loop back. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that and totally that's the makes thing sense. too with the performing. You know, you were talking about everyone has to start out not being very good, but with performing, you have to not be very good with an audience. Like there are a lot of jobs where you're not very good, but you're at your desk and your your boss may know that you're not very good, but like you're not doing your not very good accounting in front of all the people that you love or like people that don't know you or, you know, so you have to be not very good in front of people, which is so brutal actually, you know, there's that aspect of it where you're like, oh, no wonder it's scary. The more I talk about it, I'm like, no wonder. <laughs> like, I'm scared. It is scary. Let's both quit our jobs. Let's that do it. Terrible. Yeah, what are we doing? Let's Why? not do this anymore. Oh, my God. What are we thinking? You said that about, like, let's make a pact to be more honest on our social media, and I love that. Like, we need to come up with a hashtag that's just, like, no bullshit life or something mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that does that because, it, interestingly enough, one of my Instagram posts that has gotten the most likes, uh, I think other than a video of the absolutely adorable Pierce Brosnan at a recent Mrs. Doubtfire reunion, which <laughs> let's face it, everybody needs to like that because he's just amazing. But other than that one, I think the post of mine on Instagram that has gotten the most attention is a very poorly lit selfie that I did not put a filter on of me 
approximately 13 seconds after having a massive panic attack. Mm -hmm. I took that photo and was like, you know, I just really want to be honest about this. Like, I feel like, especially with anxiety, people tend to talk about it in past tense. Like, I used to have anxiety and now my life is great and Mm -hmm. everything's fine and yay. Well, okay, what about those of us who are in the middle of it? What about those of us who are still dealing with this and slogging through it, like, on a daily basis? Where's the comfort for us? And so I was amazed at the reception that that got. So I think people are really kind of starving for this idea of, mm-hmm. it's really cute, look at you, you're on a sailboat, but that's not real life, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I hope that we recognize how mentally detrimental it can be to only be showing this highlight reel of our lives and really be a lot more honest because I think there is an incredible benefit to that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So I would love to talk about anxiety and sensitivity being, you know, what's now being termed a highly sensitive person or being an introvert and being a creative artistic person it might not make sense that we are involved in these these jobs that require us to be so publicly vulnerable but there is something about the fact that we are as sensitive as we are that makes us compelled to do that Mm -hmm. i feel like it's very counterintuitive that introverts would be drawn to being actors that people who have struggles with depression would be drawn to being comedians Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. you know I think all of those things are somehow intertwined and because of our sensitivity we are drawn to the arts Mm -hmm. so somehow it feels inevitable even though it feels very counterintuitive Mm -hmm. and I have wondered if part of the reason that I was good at my job as an actor is because I feel like I have six fewer layers of skin than everybody else has, you know, because of my sensitivity. Did that make me a better actor? Even though it also made me incredibly anxious. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's, my theory is that I think that that's true for a lot of artists, that it is our sensitivity that makes us throw our hearts into a song or a poem Mm -hmm. or you know a a talk or a workshop or something where we are making ourselves incredibly vulnerable but it is because that's just who we are Mm -hmm. and I would even take it for me a step further which is that when I get sick and I can't sing I find that there's a period of time like let's say it's maybe three days where I'm okay and beyond that I start getting a little crazy. Like, I legitimately think that there is an aspect of being, like, um, for me, an aspect for me of being, like, highly empathetic and feeling a lot. There is an aspect of music and of singing that has saved me in that way. Like, I think it's the, there's twofold. There's, like, the part where it actually makes you much better because you have all of this emotion to share with your audiences. I think that's a big part of it. But I also think it's really sometimes important for the performer to have that outlet because, I mean, I felt like for my whole life, it was like, I was often the person who was like, 
having these massive big feelings about things and other people were like wow like just calm down you know and for me having the ability to sing and share those feelings it helps me be way saner in my my regular life like I actually talk I've talked about this theory with lots of other musicians who feel the same way not just singers players too who feel like they have to play their instruments like daily or they start getting a little kind of crazy so I think there's an element too of it being like a very important outlet for people who tend to be bigger feelers than the average maybe um so I don't know for me it's always been like a medicine in a lot of ways there is a Kafka quote that I have posted on my office door, which says, a non-writing writer is a monster courting insanity. <laughs> I like that. Because I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. If I am not writing, mm-hmm. if I don't have that outlet, I get a little... I get a little uh, Hard to handle. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy has actually <laughs> said to me, he'll be so sweet because he won't actually, you know, say it in any kind of accusing way, but I'll know that I'm becoming a little bit hard to handle because he'll say something, you know, very nonchalant like, hey, hey, babe, you've been writing lately? <laughs> Which is my cue. Like, all right, you're getting to be a bit much. Why yeah. don't you go put that shit on the page? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that's very true. Yes. And I think, again, it's a really powerful flip of the script and and lens change to view our sensitivity, our our empathy, our big feelings as kind of superpowers. Mm -hmm. Like, that is what allows us to do the creative work that we love to do. And it's not actually what's hindering it. Yes. It's just part of the whole package Mm -hmm. deal. And I think, again, that allows us to be more compassionate when when dealing with ourselves on those issues that it's actually a great thing. Mm -hmm. It's actually a great thing that that's part of of who we are. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I would never have expected that I would get into this arena of public speaking and teaching and workshops like if you had asked me 10 years ago you know is this going to be your path i would have said you were bananas like that no way in hell was that going to be something that i would do could do would even slightly enjoy and it's something that just sort of it evolved organically for me because i i wrote my books which was kind of the ideal experience for me because it meant I was just sort of alone for eight hours a day hunched over a keyboard, which Mm -hmm. for an introvert is heaven. But what came out of that was invitations to start coming and speaking about the topics of my book. And for a long time I said, no, like, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that because of the fear right because of the perfectionism because of all of those things that i i let my anxiety make the decisions at that point and eventually somebody was so insistent that i come and talk that it 
it convinced me and I was like, I'm just going to do this once. I'm just going to do this once. It's never going to happen again, but I got to get this guy like off my back. So I'll just go and do it once. And it was such an amazing experience for me. I was absolutely terrified. Massive intestinal issues before, mm -hmm. before I did it. But what I realized is that for me, what makes it worth it is the connection. Is that feeling of, um, it's important to me to connect to other people, to, to have important discussions about things that I think not enough people are talking about. That is all really important to me. And while I love being holed up in my office for eight hours a day completely alone, it doesn't entirely accomplish what what I want to do, which is reach out, make connections, and help people. Mm -hmm. And doing workshops and speaking engagements does that on a level that I find to be incredibly satisfying. Yeah. And so it makes the absolute terror worth it. There's this theory called free trait theory, which is that we are born with traits like introversion being one of them that are just sort of inherent. But we are able to kind of step outside of ourselves under two circumstances. One, that it is a limited time. So it doesn't mean that we do that like all the time forever, mm -hmm. but it's a limited time period. We have time to prepare before and recover after. And the other thing is if it is a cause that we truly believe in. And I feel like when I do these events, it is a cause that I truly believe in and I give myself three days to recover afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I think, what makes it worth it for me. Yeah. And I think in general, humans don't ever feel like they're ready for anything. And especially women for some reason. I don't exactly know why that is, but I have found, <clears throat> I have found that to be true. Um, so I kind of decided, I don't know when, a couple years ago, that if the world thinks I can do something, then I'm going to try it. Like, I'm not going to decide I'm not ready because I think you just never feel ready. That is just the way it, maybe it goes back to that stuff we were talking about before with the um, seven to one ratio of negative to positive thoughts. Because I think, again, we're trying to save ourselves from embarrassment or from not doing a good job, all these things. And sometimes we're not ready, but usually when the world is trying to give us the opportunity, we're ready. Like if that is happening from an outside source, I find it very rare that someone thinks that you're ready for something and you're not. Like it, that's not, usually they think that you're ready because they see something in you or they have seen um, that they believe, maybe it's not the exact same thing, but they've seen you do something similar and they know it would translate. But we just don't, we can't really see that in ourselves because we're just seeing all of the fear and all the insecurity. So I think if it's something that you want to do, if the outside world is asking for it, you just you do it and you see you know because we just I just don't think we're ever we ever really feel ready I mean I like the number of students that come to me and they want to do a performance like their first performance my feeling is great let's look at venues no 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 I'm not ready I want I mean let's do this for a couple of years let's come up I'm like we can do that but let's start coming up with let's come up with a set list let's pick a venue let's let's 
let's act like we're ready and we don't have to do it tomorrow it doesn't have to be but i think that's just such a natural tendency to want to put things like that off even if you feel like you have found the strength to move forward it's very tempting to want to perfect it so much before you show it to the world um, that we just never feel ready for anything and i love that idea of like trying on something Mm -hmm. take the little steps let's look at venues Mm -hmm. let's look at a set list Mm -hmm. like just take those little baby steps towards something yeah again right like in vivo exposure therapy take one step up the ladder Mm -hmm. take two steps up the ladder like what can you do to do those small things to realize like oh you could breathe through that maybe you can take the next step Mm -hmm. for those things that just feel really really scary yeah any final thoughts, advice for someone who might be interested in some kind of performing but feels like that is beyond them? You know, I've said this several times in this podcast, but I think the biggest thing is just knowing that anything you want to do, you have the right to try and see if it brings you joy. There's a reason that you're drawn to it. You. I was going to say owe it to yourself, but that's not even true. You don't owe anything to yourself, but you have the power within you to move through that fear and do it anyway. That's what bravery feels like. It's supposed to feel scary in the beginning. That's what, that's just how humans feel. It doesn't in any way mean that you shouldn't do it. You also said something incredibly important, which is you have the right. I feel like I didn't write for such a long time because I felt like, oh, I can't be a writer because I don't have an MFA. Mm-hmm. I don't have the greatest spelling skills and all of these reasons. Yeah. And you you have the right to do it because you're a human on the planet. And if you want to try it, try it. Yes. And I think so many of us are waiting for somebody else to give us a permission slip to go out into the world and do things and nobody's going to give that to you Mm -mm. even people I know who have MFAs don't feel legitimate calling themselves writers like Mm -hmm. we're always going to move the bar on ourselves Mm -hmm. and nobody else is going to say like I now pronounce you a singer that may go out to venues and that's not how it works with the arts and so it's not like you know you take some accounting test and therefore you are accredited to be an accountant it's different and so we have to be confident enough to give ourselves permission to try things and go out into the world and, and, and be brave because that's how you make your own life interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, you might even get the opposite. Like, not only may you not get people that say, you are now a writer, you are now a singer, you might even have people that say, you're not a, you're not a singer, you're not a writer. Like, so people that... Uh, maybe many reasons why people do this but they feed into your deepest insecurity and I also think we have such specific ideas of what things are supposed to look like like for example this idea of a performer is somebody who feels really confident on stage who tends to be big with their body like they move they feel really comfortable they're beautiful they I mean there's all they're hip they're cool they've got all this stuff they're young usually like we have all these ideas so, but for somebody like me, my performing, I've actually had someone tell me, and it will stick with me forever, even though now I know it to be nonsense, it still sticks with me. I remember her telling me, she's like, you know, you just, 
you do not seem like a performer to me. This was after a show. And she told me the people that she felt like did seem like performers to me. She's like, you have a lovely voice, but I just don't think you're going to do this. You don't seem like a performer. And now what I think she meant by that was that I'm not like a, a big, like, hey, everybody, how you doing? Like, that is just not me. What I do is I tend to share stories about my life. You know, I get uh, the connection with the audience is really important to me. It's sort of a different, it's just a different way of performing. Um, I'm not like big and boisterous and getting people up on their feet and clapping. I mean, that happens sometimes, but typically it's not because of my internal energy. I do things a little bit differently, but that doesn't in any way mean that I'm not a performer. It means I'm not that very specific type of performer. So I think that's the other thing that you have to realize is that this can look so many different ways. I mean, I am not, I'm not a young person. I have two, I have two children. I'm a mom. I'm like doing that thing. You know, I'm not hip. I've never been hip. You know, that's not what I am, but I love to sing and I love to write. And there is an aspect that makes, I feel alive on stage in a way that I don't in other ways. So that is very legitimate. It doesn't have to look like it looks on TV or on wherever you see the things. It just can look the way it is. You're totally hip to me and I love you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank Maybe that you. means you're not hip though. Oh, it <laughs> totally means that I am not hip. Absolutely. Or are we the hippest? <gasps> I don't know. Maybe. You just blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> you just blew my mind a little bit. Me too. Um, Thank you so much oh, you're for talking to me. Yes. Um, I am also honored. The beautiful Brie, mm. singing beautiful. Thank you, honey. All right, love you. Love you If you want to hear more from Brie Gregg and her band Redbird, you can do that at redbirdsoul.com or check out one of her live shows next time you are in Portland, Oregon. Thank you so much for listening. If you want show notes, links, if you would like to make a donation so that we can keep this podcast going and keep it commercial free, I would be so grateful. And you can do all of that at embraceyourweirdpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I've been cute and I've been pretty, but you didn't mean just on the eye.